Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Underground Podcast. This is episode 32, In the Borderlands. We are broadcasting live, well, live for us from the Power of Change Worldwide Shedquarters here in Blacksburg, Virginia. I'm here with my co-host, Jesse Fury. What's up, Reed? It's good to be back together, man. It's good to be back in the shed quarters. It's been a while. Yeah, man. Jesse and I are a contrast right now in our appearances because Jesse has on a... We need a, to start Facebook living this. We should because this is this would be uh, embarrassing for me, actually, <laughs> because I'm in like a, a tattered gray hoodie that my brother gave me for Christmas like 10 years ago that I mm. love. It's comfortable, but it's got like, looks like a dog bit on my sleeves yeah. and... I look like I'm going to wrestling practice, and, and Jesse's got on like a leather sleeve, patch cardigan, button down, hair back. The sleeves are not leather. The patch is leather. Oh, a leather sleeved cardigan would be odd. That, that you, you would look like one of the village people with that. <laughs> with that What's been going on, man? Oh, man. Just living the dream out in Radford. You know, we had that huge windstorm last week. Did you have any branches come down? I was in Texas, man, so I, I, I don't you know. Made, Casey, go out and cut him down. Yeah, she probably was running a chainsaw. You know, she's like the homesteader here. <laughs> we we had like the top half of this giant tree wow. break, get loose, fall five feet, and then dangle dangerously like a over, final destination over your children's heads. Over the 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 big swing we have on the tree that our wow. children play on. Wow. Uh, so that's what's been going on in our life. Did we you had climb hire, the tree? And, oh no, yeah, good, it was like good. fifty feet up. Good. I mean, I could have done it, Reed, if I wanted to, but I didn't want to. We have some trees on the side of the house here that have deposited like roots in one of the edge of our gutters. And so we're try, trying to think of how we're going to clean that. And we're like a 50 foot ladder. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm going to pay someone. That's what you hire someone <laughs> yeah. to do. Yeah. Well, there's a professor, uh, a friend of mine named Bruce Ware, who years ago fell off a ladder cleaning his gutters. I hurt his back really bad. Yeah, that'll mess you up. Yeah. And so I'm like, I'm not trying to go out no. like that. So Yeah, you yeah. don't want to go out. Clean gutters. I just got back from uh, Ohio where I went to um, a funeral of a friend's father. Uh, mm-hmm. Guy's dad was a pastor and really, really powerful time, man. I was uh, honored really to be there listening to people talk about their father, husband, friend. A uh, guy who re- retired, he was an elder, he was a business guy and retired. Um, and then they needed a pastor. And for the last five years, he's kind of been their preaching, teaching pastor. And then. Um, in the last couple of years or so, dying of cancer. And uh, one of the things that they shared was this, uh, he, he preached, I guess, midsummer while, you know, stage four cancer and everything on life and death out of the book of Philippians. So basically they had the guy preach his own funeral service. Um, they had a recording, his son edited it. I think our yeah, episode 33 is likely going to be uh, talking about life and death on here on the underground. We're going to let this guy preach to us. But it was, uh, it was moving, man. It was really, really moving. I bet, man. So, yeah. so coming off of that, I was like, well, Lord, thank, thank you for letting me be here. Yeah. Um, because I just felt like there was a, uh, a true, uh, man of the Lord who, uh, not living for the, the fame and lights of, you know, American Christianity stuff, but just, uh, faithfully, uh, shepherding a people with, yeah. the, with the word. And even in his last, uh, few months giving such a gift to all of us who were present. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, hearing that reminds me of, the scene in uh, in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce when he's he's in the paradise, uh, you know, starting to maybe become embodied a bit. He sees the woman, right, and she's surrounded by like this great train of uh, people and animals, and she was like a nobody, you know, as far as what the world saw. Right, but God right. saw that she actually 
connected with and, and, and brought the gospel to so many people through her life. And hearing that, you know, here's a guy who's probably doesn't have Twitter. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And yet, you got to experience the legacy yeah. and, the, and the and the investment that he made in people. Yeah, it was it was really fantastic. It's a really good uh, illustration from Lewis. Um, the Napoleons of the world were kind of in the outer realms, uh, far from yeah. God, and the in the reality. Yeah, and the the first will be last, the last will be first, the greatest in the kingdom, right, is the least. Um, these kind of things sometimes break through our world that's so obsessed with you know celebrity and fame and popularity, and the, certainly the the Christian church yeah. sometimes can get drunk with that mess as well. Yep. So uh, how how else is your life going, Reed? <laughs> that's a big question man um it's, people people want to know i know they don't well maybe <laughs> they do if you're listening in you're probably our friends yeah. and so yeah um we're, we're kind of an interesting season um my wife casey we've been married almost 23 years and um she's got a pretty uh significant uh surgery coming up on monday the 29th of uh, october she's a bit private so i won't go into too much detail there, but uh, she'll be in the hospital a couple of days, and you know we're hopeful for a quick recovery yeah. and a smooth procedure. But she's—I think she's a little nervous. Sure. Um, but just a privilege, right, to walk with one another as you—you you know, sickness and health. You get older in life, and uh, things become more meaningful. We tell young married couples this all the time: Hey, stick through the hard days where you're headbutting and fighting about stupid stuff, and and go into the deeper years of the marriage covenant because there is something that happens in forms that's uh, significantly, significantly beautiful. Amen. Amen. I agree. Well, I'm going to transition now to a, a little reviewish uh, segment, Jesse. Um, and this is kind of an odd one, seeing that we're talking about. Oh, maybe not, actually. There's there's actually uh, an, an interesting transition. This is a book reviewish that I wanted to do quickly from a book called AI, and that is Artificial Intelligence, uh, AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. This sounds like a book you would read. <laughs> it's by a guy named Kai-Fu Lee, a very interesting gentleman who actually kind of straddles both cultures of America and um, in China. He's the CEO of something called Sinovation Leaders, a leading uh, kind of venture capital firm in China. But I, I believe he was... Um, Born in Taiwan, raised in uh, America, educated here, higher education, was very involved in uh, software engineering, uh, artificial intelligence. Um, and he's worked for Google, Microsoft, Apple, a little bit of everybody. He's kind of like one of the gurus of the AI re- hmm. revolution. So it's kind of a interesting take a book where it's, uh, it starts out just like looking at artificial intelligence, what it is and what it isn't, which is really helpful because he gets rid of this idea that we're creating this like super, you know, Skynet thing right now, which we really aren't. Uh, and then how learning systems and machines will actually uh, be helpful to society, but has a uh, devastating effect perhaps on the job market. Hmm. Uh, maybe going to put people out of work and and what and he was kind of growing a bit like concerned and hopeless and then the book takes a real kind of interesting um turn where uh he comes down with uh, stage form uh for lymphoma himself uh cancer which really kind of shook him i think to to think about what it means to be human that he'd kind of been leading his own life as a productivity and influence and impact uh algorithm like how can i be the hmm. most awesome and he comes to the conclusion that human beings are boiled down to kind of love and relationship. Um, he, it seems like he has a Christian background, also kind of uh, in, influenced by some Buddhist teachers. Uh, but very interesting, his um, his suggestions for the future are going to be about what's most human about us. And he's like giving and receiving love. It's kind of like, wow, this is an engineer talking about love. 
So highly recommended. Um, just to think about the future a little bit, I'm going to post on Power of Change here soon a, a critical book review of this book, and so be on the lookout for that. Sounds good. Sounds good. I, I might have to uh, snatch that when you're not looking on my way out of the... Yeah, man, snatch it, because I read it in audiobook too, but this copy, you can grab it. It's pretty pretty interesting stuff, and very human uh, by Kai-Fu Lee. And that, that kind of... Um, transitions a little bit to our main topic today where we're talking about culture itself um the gospel underground we we say that we're a dialogue taking place on the borderlands right between the church and culture and uh, this week i found this was kind of a weird place but i found a guy who's doing um history writing histories uh related to borderlands and he's got a little abstract of his research that was on OxfordBibliographies.com, which is strange. We'll put it in the show notes. But he had a really good definition for borderlands that I think will help us when we're thinking about church and culture. And he said this, a borderland is both a place and a historiographic methodology, a method in, that historians use. Although historians often combine the two uses, a borderland in its loosest definition is a place where two entities, usually nations or societies, border one another. And as a methodology, borderland studies, I guess that that's what we might be doing a little here on the Gospel Underground, uh, question what happens when distinct societies rub against each other or contest lands in between. What do these situations tell us about both the core societies and the spaces in between, and I felt that was really a great definition for us, um, Jesse, because we're we're looking at two distinct entities: God, the people of God, uh, those who are you know the, make up the world and the various cultures, and then how? What, is, what do we learn about the world? What do we learn about ourselves as we interact, right, in these these borderlands between the church and culture? You you recently wrote a really good paper. I think if you put that on the Bonhoefferhouse dot com or dot org yet. Uh, the paper you dot wrote com. on uh, dot com. Yeah, but no, I have not, and I will. I will today. Okay. Um, that way we can we can kind of point to it, and uh, and actually I hope to to next week put on a counterpart that has more to do with engaging culture. Awesome. Uh, so it's more of a you know I, I took some time last year and uh, did a little bit of like a biblical survey of culture. So uh, what is culture? How can we how can we understand the the Bible story? The story of kind of Christian redemption with through the lens of culture. Um, and in that, in that, you know, and again, we'll link to that, but uh, uh, I came across some really interesting and helpful definitions of culture. Uh, one is uh, sociolo- sociologist Clifford Geertz, who is really just summary, summarizing Max Weber, but he described culture this way, uh, saying that believing that man is an animal suspended in webs of significance, he himself has spun. I take culture to be those webs. So in other words, culture is the webs of significance and meaning that hold us together. Uh, but I think that that's, that's not maybe a full biblical picture of culture, that culture, the way I define it in the paper is, uh, is, is the way that we make sense of the world as we make something of the world. Mm. And so there's, there's both this idea of we're creating and cultivating God's natural resources. Um, we're making stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. And and his 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 uh, webs of significance is like around my house there's like 100 million little spider webs and each of those could be like its own little culture, right? Where things are done a certain way there. I I, I even uh, this morning was thinking about the metaphor of a fog. If you know you're on the mountain and you're in a fog, there are certain things there that different people see, people don't see, but it's if you're in that fog, you're all in it together. And that culture itself, right, is something we're all in, right? Yeah. Uh, but yet we're creating it at the same time, right? That, like, like, I love the way you said that. It's like the way we make sense of our world, the way we see, and the way we make something That's of, right. of the world. And so when we when we use the term culture, it is kind of this amorphous kind of composition type um, idea uh, that it's made up of things we believe, the stories we write, the stories we tell, the films we make, the songs we sing, uh, the things we love, the things we worship. Um, and, and it's really hard to even calculate everything that makes up a culture because within cultures, there's subcultures and all sorts of things influencing us. But that doesn't mean that the fog isn't there if we don't see it all consciously or write papers on it. Uh, but certainly the world around us has a flow to it. We're in that river, uh, both a part of it and then as God's people, not a part of it, right? Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. That, so, that, so how would you classify like us being a, fo- if you're a follower of, of Jesus, right? Mm. How, how do we see the world, right? That we create and inhabit? Oh man, that's a, that's a, Big question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I want to first say yes to what you're saying. Like even the idea of water or fog uh, reminds me of the um, the commencement speech that David Foster Wallace gives at Kenyon College. Foster Wallace being a journalist and author uh, and academic who who uh, tragically died early. Um, and in that, he tells a story: of the two fish swimming in water, and the old fish, the older fish, swims by and says, "Good morning, boys. How's the water?" And they swim on for another five minutes before one of them looks at the other one and says, what the hell's water? <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and, and really what he's saying is, is what you're saying, which is that there, the water is the culture. We live in a culture, whether we see it or not. We, right. see, we see through our culture. It, it affects the way that we see uh, what we see. Um, T.S. Eliot actually said that culture is a way of life. Uh, it's not just yeah. a collection of things. It's yeah. not just a bunch of activities. It's 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 a way of life, a way and, of being in the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I I said all that, and I don't think I answered your question at all. What did you what What did you ask? Yeah. Me? That no, that's really good. In terms of um, as a follower of of Jesus, um, yeah, and in, in according to the biblical narrative, right, the biblical story, the story maybe that shapes us or more than anything else, the life we're at least attempting to li- to live imperfectly, yeah. uh, needing both re- repentance and faith. Um, should that narrative tell us that what is culture in that narrative? Good, bad. Um, what are your, your some thoughts biblically, yeah, theologically that's good. on that? Okay, so um, and again, I, I walk, walk through this in my paper, but I think the way that I view culture Christianly is to say that culture is a good thing, right? God, God is the creator of culture because he's made people. He made people, and people in context of creation make things. That's and right. And not, and not only that, he makes people, he situates them in a place. Place is important to culture. Uh, he situa- situates them in a place and then he, he invites them to make meaning, right? Mm. He says, you can eat of any of these trees, but you can't eat this tree. 
And he's inviting them to actually try to make sense of that. How do I make sense of this? Do I trust God in, in his word to me or do I distrust him? Uh, he, he also invites them to make stuff, right? He says, yeah. uh, make people, make uh, created goods. Uh, you know, he's inviting them into this. Categorize co- it, classify, classify it, understand Name the it. animals, yeah. understand, which, which, which it involves a kind of incarnational, like I'm, uh, I'm in the flesh with these animals, you know, in that, in that first picture of naming the animals, I, I'm exercising both an authority and a, a closeness to them. Uh, and, and so he's inviting man to make things and to make sense, to make meaning. And, uh, really, in the the fall in the story of the Bible is not just a the fall of man. It's not just a it's not just a rebellion of a person. It's a cultural failure. Yeah, right. They have uh, they have failed to receive God's word and make sense of it in in the right ways. They've to live out even their purpose. That's right. right. They yeah. twist the purpose God for which God made us, put us in a world to uh, cultivate and create, and then things go a little sideways. So culture is then the product of both something that's very good human beings, but human beings that are kind of twisted and heading off in really wrong directions. That's right. So now culture is, you know, we're not looking for a culture less paradise uh, because culture will always be, you know, there's, there's culture in revelation, there's culture in the new heavens and the new earth because there is creation. There is culture and people in it. Yeah. But culture has been bent and twisted. Some cultures are better than other cultures as far as representing God. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's an interesting thing, right? Because in our day saying something like that, Jesse, (laughs) some cultures are better than others. Right? Yeah. Now I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying you said probably something I, that I, like my kids high school would be very controversial. Right. Yeah, right. You, it would be. What do you mean by better? Yeah, so I think uh displaying true ju- just good beautiful things, right? Yeah. So do we do we treat people made in the image of God with dignity and respect? Yeah. The weak um, of society, how are they treated? With yeah. Kindness, goodness. So there's even like a... And, and by the way, can I... Inter- yeah, I'm interrupting. Yeah, uh, you, you can. I know I'm friends with plenty of people who are who are pretty strict cultural relativists. Right. But deep down, like if you press them the, off the record, they, right. don't, they don't actually believe that all cultures are equal. Right. You can actually get people to talk about stuff that pisses them off. Yeah. Um, and they'll show you they're not cultural relativists. Right. Like you, you, someone in the resistance, you mentioned the president's name, they, they, their head spins around and, and they're saying there's pure evil in the world. And then certainly those and of a different perspective, you could do a similar tricks. Right. Too. Um, yeah, I, I agree that, that there's a moral dimension an alignment with goodness, right? That God has made, right? God has made the universe a place that has good and evil now, uh, and we can accord with the purpose of God has made us, or not. Like, uh, years ago, there was a a debate between an atheistic philosopher, uh, Bertrand Russell, and a Jesuit priest, uh, uh, Father Copleston, where um, Copleston asked uh, um, about the moral sense of the world, where he'd say something is better, he asked uh, Russell, the atheist, how do you distinguish between good and bad? And Russell replied, the same way I distinguish between yellow and blue. And Copleson said, well, you, you distinguish yellow and blue by seeing. How do you distinguish good from bad? And Russell said, well, by feeling what else? And, of course, the reply was, well, some cultures feel it's better to love their neighbors. Some feel it's better to eat them. Which do you prefer? So there are cultures, perhaps, that are better. Now that should not provoke kind of a cultural superiority from anybody, right. but a humility uh, and a desire 
to live submitted lives to God in the light of his truth and, and try to live in a just and good society and create one together. That's right. And, and, rep, and recognizing, too, that um, uh, there's, there's both special grace of God, and, and we would say there's revelation that we, you know, we would want to see culture uh, shaped by God's revealed word. Yes. There's also common grace, so this idea that God has uh, has given grace common to all mankind. Causes the rain to fall, fall on the, the evil just and, and, yep. and the good, yeah. And then I would say, um, and I think Peter Lightheart has written on this, that there's maybe a third category where uh, where we would call it common grace now. Like you might yeah. look at um, some aspects of um, human rights. Right. But human rights worldwide, you could trace back in some ways to a Christian worldview of, uh, of loving those less fortunate, right? Seeing the image of God in all of, all of God's uh, creatures. And so, so it's kind of a middle grace, right? There, it's yeah. common grace now, but it, it first came about through the person of Jesus uh, being revealed. Yeah, yeah. And by common grace, um, what we're meaning is that God's goodness shown to peoples, all peoples, not just kind of yep. those who are in covenant with him or his people, the church, yep. but yet common. It reminds me of a phrase that I believe comes from Martin Luther, where he said he'd rather be governed by a benevolent Turk. And by that, he meant a Turk, part of the Ottoman Empire, which yeah. was the scary, most scary thing to Europe at the time when he was writing. He'd be rather be governed by a benevolent Turk than by a wicked Christian in terms of common grace or shaping culture. Um, just because someone says they're part of Christianity or something doesn't necessarily make uh, the systems, the things that they might want to create uh, good. Well, in, in terms of those those two categories, creation and then in some ways being co-creators after our own creation, God has given us a task, right, to shape, you know, subdue the earth, so to speak, and yeah. shape and cultivate it. Um, we then, um, these two words, create culture, and we inhabit it. Um, what are some of the things that you see that we create that form cultures? Yeah, that's good. So um, this is where I think when we think about creating culture, we're, we are thinking about what philosophers would call artifacts, Right, so some of this would just be um, we we make stuff, we make goods, we make we make art, we make music, you know, John Denver songs and hip hop songs and poetry and films and yeah. that's right from John Denver to hip hop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, those have, are cultural artifacts. Have you ever heard John Denver sung as hip hop? <laughs> I had I have one time in Eastern Europe. It was a country roads to a techno hip. It was actually more techno beat, and then the guy was trying to rap, and I and I couldn't sleep, and it was not a good night. <laughs> it does. It doesn't sound like a good night. Um, yeah. So, uh, but we're, we would also think about creating culture even within, say, families. Right. So we uh, families probably the primary place of transmission of culture, creation of culture. Uh, we we think of that too in church communities, um, in our in our uh, in our workplaces. This is what uh, Kuy- Abraham Kuyper and the Kuyperian kind of tradition it was kind of a, a Dutch statesman, Dutch statesman. Came, I think president of the Netherlands, maybe? yeah, yeah, yeah prime minister, yeah, I think, prime and, minister, yeah, and the um, and founded a newspaper, a political party. Christian uh, trade unions, all yeah. kind of all kind of things. Uh, so th- this idea that God has given has. has Jesus is sovereign over all, but then he's sort of kind of loaned out his sovereignty into different spheres who have the spheres being uh, not just state and church, but also family. And uh, if you work at Nationwide, at the office at Nationwide, it has its own a little sphere, sphere there. Yeah. And, and that a good society 
recognizes that God ordained this to that. And so, and so it works well when these, when these fears work well together, recognizing mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and not wanting to dominate each other, but wanting to uh, influence yeah. within their own sphere, and yeah, and do the fact that uh, nationwide is on your side. It, it probably has a pretty good culture. When you say, <laughs> well, we should, we should well, be sponsored. We should yeah. be sponsored. <laughs> that was terrible. That was a dad joke, wasn't it? That was it a was. dad joke. Sorry about that, friends. Um, what do you think about? Um, there's also this is a word I want to use: inhabit. Okay. There's a lot of people, right, and of course ourselves too. Uh, we just kind of live in it, um, sometimes uh, subconsciously, unconsciously, uncritically. We're just kind of floating in the stream or sitting in the fogs ourselves. Is that is that good or bad? Does it depend? I mean, how how do how do we we can't escape it, right? Right. So so what do we do in it? Isn't there just sort of a a, a, a certain amount of that that you have to just be okay with i'm asking you that yeah i well i mean yeah you can't you can't be aware of everything and you can't change everything yeah it's like um it's like in leadership somebody who's hyper intentional about everything right um there's certain things in cultures of organizations churches families that just happen yeah uh, they're just that's why people say culture always uh, trumps vision or, or conquers vision you can talk all you want but the culture of something f- f- the stream floating along really does influence i mean we're speaking english right yeah yeah, we didn't we didn't think about that. Our no. brains absorb English from our mamas and daddies speaking it over us. And yeah, I think there is some that's just assumed. But there's there's some times though where I, I we use we have to wake up. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, um, so one of the most influential books I've read on culture is by T. S. Eliot. He wrote it in I think it's 1948. It's called Notes Toward a Definition of Culture. In it, he says this about this very thing. A society is in danger of disintegration when there's a lack of contact between people of different areas of activity, now, between the political, the scientific, the artistic, the f- philosophical, the religious minds. Uh, you, you maybe could c- carry that on and say diff- different ethnicities, yeah. uh, different social strata, that really a culture at Interest large. Tr- tribes of certain interests. Yeah, like, in which know, we're in that kind of world, niche right? Niche markets. Yeah. yeah. So we're, we're, when there's a stratification and a separation or yeah. fracturing, that's a bad thing because different different cultures actually expose blind spots in our own right. culture, uh, help us to grow, and we can come alongside of and and... Uh, and love people better when we actually are aware of our own blind spots and aware of things that are good in other cultures. Right. Uh, so uh, there's so, there's nothing yeah. like a, a cross cultural experience that's enjoyable and one that's extremely disturbing. Yeah. Um, because in both of those scenarios, we have just wonderful opportunities to learn or even self examine. Right. When some someone from a different perspective calls out something that's wicked in your culture. Um, it's it's time for repentance, which is a kindness and gift right. from God. And then certainly, like when you're involved in cross cultural experiences that are enjoyable, right? You see the beauty of God's work amongst many different peoples. Where yeah. and you're not tribing yourself off quite quite as much as we it, typically do. And and it and it shapes you into the into a more virtuous person too, yeah. because you're more open for both recognizing God's beauty in other cultures and other people, but you're also, you, you have more inputs into, into your own, uh, your own life. So that's the, I would say that's one of the benefits of God 
making a, a multicultural world, right? And even it continuing through the salvation of people from every nation, tribe, into a new people, and into a, a coming kingdom that will be forever multicultural, um, I think is part of the beauty of it. But there's also a, a bit... Um, uh, because culture is created by fallen creatures, there's also a danger, right, to the fog, so to speak. Or, or, or I don't know, this will be really geeky, nerdy sci-fi, but um, I think it was Star Trek The Next Generation had this entity called the Borg. Um, and I love the Borg as a, as a yeah, I guess you could call it a character. It's more like a, a collective. I think it's called the Borg Collective. And it was like this um, assimilating thing that, that kind of became this big hive of creatures. And, and I think that, you know, the Borg would come along a civilization and say resistance is futile, right? We will absorb your biological life and existence into our own. And basically you would just become part of the Borg. Um, you didn't want to get bored. It was bad, right? It's like, oh, I don't want to become part of the Borg. And in culture, you need to, you need to write a blog post on <laughs> the board collective. Bo- collective. Uh, shout out to my friends at Jacobs Well who had too many Borg illustrations <laughs> over uh, eight years of pulpit pul- ministry. But um, <laughs> um, the Borg, right? If you think of the Borg as a culture, there is this aspect where cultures that are ungodly. Uh, evil uh, will want to absorb our lives. Um, in fact, there's when the Bible uses the term "do not love the world" or anything in the world, it's speaking of this uh, dominating cultural reality that's at enmity or at war with God, that is not friendly to King Jesus, and will want to, you know, hide hide your wives, hide your kids because you know they're snatching everybody up in here. So there's an aspect uh, that we have to resist culture, right? We have to resist, and there's a few a few concepts that I think are important when we think about resistance. Hmm. And by resistance, I don't mean go to war with the culture or to create culture wars or just fight the culture. But uh, in other words, we have to we can't be dominated and captured by it. I like to think of uh, safe harboring, you know, ships uh, who would find sh- safe harbor from the storm, you know, maybe in an island lagoon. Uh, the raging storms won't destroy them if they find a safe in our safe harbor is in Christ, right, in mm. his people, in the community of God, right? Uh, and that community then, though, is in the culture, in the world. So it's kind of this, we withdraw into the Lord and each other without withdrawing from our influence and witness in the world. Now, there's a few few books I was really helpful help, helped with about kind of resistance thinking, and one of them was a book that I wish would get more tote uh, in the world by a guy named Oz Guinness. It's called Prophetic Untimeliness. It's a little small book, and the subtitle is A Challenge to the Idol in Worshiping a False God of Relevance. Hmm. In other words, when the church just simply tries to be relevant to the culture, right? Let's say, hey, let's be more like the world so they'll be, think we're cool and come to our church. Always a bad idea. Right? Because then we deny our countercultural na- nature. We deny that the ruling king over us who guides our affairs through his word and his spirit uh, is different than the world. Right, The world killed Jesus because they didn't like him. God raised him from the dead because he's uh, the one who rules all things. And we follow him. And doing that, we're going to be different than the world. We, and that sometimes that's not always relevant. And Oz Guinness wrote this book about... Um, Prophetic untimeliness, meaning we have to speak a word from eternity in time and culture in order to actually have relevance forever on the earth to fulfill our purpose. And, but he introduces this concept that I believe he gets uh, from C.S. Lewis called resistance thinking. And I, and I love it. Here's, here's how he describes it. 
Resistance thinking is a term adapted from a 1945 essay by C.S. Lewis on Christian apologetics. It is a way of thinking that balances the pursuit of relevance on the one hand with a tenacious awareness of those elements of the Christian message that don't fit with any contemporary age on the other. Emphasize only the natural fit between the gospel and the spirit of our age, and we will have an easy, comfortable gospel that is closer to our own age than to the gospel. All answers to human aspirations, for example, and no, or hey, this makes life flourish, um, and no mention of self-denial or sacrifice. Mm. But if you emphasize the difficult, the obscure, and even the repellent themes of the gospel— Certain that they too are relevant, even though we don't know how, we will remain true to the full gospel. And surprisingly, we will be relevant not only to our own generation, but also to the next, and to the next, and to the next. C.S. Lewis observed the same principle hold true in both faith and in science. Progress is made only into resisting material. Resistance thinking, then, is a way of relevance with faithfulness. Hmm. And I think in our time, um, so many people chase relevance in culture and they lose faithfulness. Or if you only seek faithfulness without trying to connect and communicate in culture, you lose your influence and witness. And this uh, resistance thinking is a way we might be able to balance both. And even when we think about our own kids, right, we're bringing them up. In this world, right, 21st century, North American context with a globalizing uh, economy, technology, all these things, even we're talking about here on on the underground, Jesse. Um, When you think about your own kids, what are some of the things about the culture that are maybe a little concerning or nerve wracking or fearful to you and your wife? Well, there's all kinds of things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, uh, from... uh, you, some things that seem may seem kind of benign, like uh, a, a devaluing of friendship. Yeah. So that's one where you know, if you, I have, I have over a thousand friends. Yeah. Quote unquote. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, my kids will grow up thinking about when they think of the yeah. word friend, they'll have a certain association that I didn't have growing up. Right. Um, that I want to resist. I want to teach them to have. Uh, have have good friends. I want to teach them how to be a good friend. Yeah. Um. I think even just the whole social media short attention span. Um. You know. Uh. Um. Yeah. Devaluing of a person. I want to. I want to resist that. It's the instant imaging of life rather than knowing deeply yeah. people's lives. And and even the uh, the autonomous self meaning kind of self creating meaning. Um. You know that that's the water they're going to swim in growing yeah. up, and I want to, I really want to inoculate them against that. That yeah. they 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 know enough of that to understand it, but that they receive their meaning from their maker and yeah. not from um, you know their own kind of self self-created micro tribe. Yeah, yeah. We we we've created a world where we're known by our interests or or our loves only, and and then the other smaller groups we can gather around these things, perhaps, and it does fracture us heavily into tribes, where God wants us to have an identity as created creatures, as a as a son or daughter, both in family and covenant with Him, and in relationship with the world that both involves both loving the world like God does, and then resisting the the dominating aspect of the world, like God would have yeah, us to do. I want my kids to be 
a little bit weird. Yeah, 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 but, yeah. Uh, but attractive. Yeah, you know, like um, winsomely it, weird. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In in a way that that it, what I mean attractive, I mean in a way that that draws people in, that makes people yeah. want to spend time with them. Uh, but that is um, kind of head scratching to the to the you yeah. know, surrounding culture. Yeah, amen. You you mentioned the word inoculation. I, I read th- I read this um, book years ago by uh, he was he's I got multiple degrees in in both mathematics, science, and theology. William Dembski, um, but he and a guy named uh, Wesley Richards wrote a book called Unapologetic Apologetics, and they wrote this about inoculation. And this is something we really have. Uh, wanted to do well with our kids because it takes wisdom, right? But he says this, the proper model for handling exposure to false ideas is not quarantine, but inoculation. Now, quarantine is like the goal of some Christian communities. Keep the big bad world away from us. Keep our kids away from everything, right? There's all kind of motives that people have just to avoid bad influences on our kids. And uh, Dempsey and Richard said that's not the, the good model for dealing with false teaching, false truths, bad culture, um, not quarantine, but inoculation. And he goes on to say this, inoculation exposes a person to a disease, but in measured doses so that the destructive effects of the disease are mitigated. The person inoculated against a disease ceases to be at risk even when exposed to it. The inoculated individual is immune. Similarly, the student that has been inoculated against false ideas is far less likely to succumb to them uh, in the student who has been cloistered away from them. Precisely because they have already been exposed to falsehood, inoculated students become convincing critics of falsehoods and defenders of the truth. For this reason, Christian apologetics needs to stress uh, inoculation. And I think that's really good because we've that's seen good. this. Both of us have done some years in campus ministry in our past uh, vocational pursuits. And I think both of us have probably seen uh, kids who are trying to be kept from the world. Then they go off to a big college and all of a sudden their faith gets knocked around in a, in a simple introduction to the New Testament or philosophy class by some, you know, atheistic professor who's arrogant, who thinks he's really smart in the whole world. But the, the Christian students hearing this stuff for the very first time ever. And then all of a sudden they're, uh, you know the the cultural disease is all over them. Whereas someone who's been taught to think about they didn't things, get the flu shot. They didn't get the flu shot. That's right. They really didn't. That's they right. have no idea. That's right. That's right. They had. They had. I, I got the flu last year, and, and I and my kids. Have, like, told, I thought you were going to die, Reed. They told they told me I had the man flu as well, which is a different kind of flu. <laughs> I actually had the strain of flu that was like actually killing folk. And I, and I was seriously messed up, but then they, I were, remember. they were showing me these comedy videos about people that had the man flu, which is a guy who has the sniffles who thinks he's going <laughs> to die. Because I guess this is true. Statistics wear it, bear it out, and there's been research on this, that, that men typically get sick and uh, deal with the flu poorly. But, but this is true. Like Our kids right, don't need to be quarantined from the world. They need to live in it with people who love them and trust them. Um, and then to be taught about this idea is that when cultural relativism comes up in a class at school, uh, parents need to be discussing those issues with clarity, rigor, and some hopefully some skill so that kids don't get swept away uh, by things uh, like the various cultural diseases of our day, like yeah. loneliness, lack of friendship, some of the things you shared. Yeah. Well, D.A. Carson wrote a book um, 
not too long ago, maybe 10 years back, called Christ and Culture Revisited, where he just kind of looks at the way Christians over time have dealt with how do we live in and engage culture. And this is interesting because when you think about it, Jesse, um, this is a uniquely Christian thing because if you think about Jesus, he actually taught us, right? Somebody asked him, hey, Jesus, this is a question maybe, so I think it's in like Matthew 21. Um, some of you maybe uh, will, will hate this because it, it has to do with paying your taxes. But, but people are like, Jesus, they have to pay the IRS. Do I have to pay my taxes? And he said, well, give me that coin over there. And they give him a coin. He said, whose picture is on it? And the, the, the reply is, well, Caesar. And he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, pay your taxes, and give to God what belongs to God. In doing that, Jesus clearly taught us, right? You can call it what you want, that there is the kingdom of God and there is a kingdom of this world. Uh, there are the spheres of culture on the earth, and there's also um, uh, that which belongs to and ruled and reigned fully by God. Uh, separation of church and state, right? doesn't come from Thomas Jefferson's speech to the Connecticut Baptist. It comes from this interaction in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is different, right, when you think of church, uh, uh, Christians and culture. Because, so for instance, Islam. Uh, Islam actually is not a separating uh, culture. There's no separation of church and state. Muhammad was a warlord, a political ruler, and the religious prophet and, of, and religious leader of the community. Um, Islamic law is the law of the land in purely Islamic cultures, at least uh, for the purists. Uh, Sharia law, the laws of God, why wouldn't you govern by these things? But for Christians throughout time, they've existed under many cultures, many political systems, and in many ways. All over the earth today, even, our sisters and brothers do that. And so Christians have had to think through, how do I relate to this world that our church is a part of, I go to work and I'm a part of. And and D.A. Carson looks at different models that have been put forth over the years. One is fundamentalists. He's using that in the early 20th century American context where the basic solution was, well, these universities are going crazy. This world is going crazy. We'll just pull out of the world, kind of the, the move. We're going to create our own separate world altogether, sealed off from everybody. Uh, Luther, Martin Luther's vision of two kingdoms. One is a distorted world by sin and the fall and should be and only can be governed by the law. Um, and the other kingdom, the kingdom of God, is, renewed, is, is uh, ruled by grace and governed by the gospel, right? And so we live in both, and so we have that tension. Mm -hmm. That's where Luther even gets into ethically. we got to choose the lesser two evils because we live in a fallen world. Um, the third one Carson mentioned is Kuyperian, who, who obviously is referring to the sphere sovereignty. Jesus is sovereign of all, but he's given nationwide a certain culture, and his rule is expressed there. Um, and then one that he Carson mentioned was called Minimalist Expectations. And he quotes uh, a lady named Frederica Matthews Green, and she compared culture to the weather. In other words, we, we have to have low expectations for our predictions of and our control over the weather. And so the culture of the world is chaotic. It's, it's, it's nutty. And so the focus that Green would say is that is to care for the individuals who are caught up in the storm. So if you're in the middle of a hurricane, uh, you want to help folks. And Christians should be doing that, share the gospel, share redemption, see people saved in the midst of the chaos of the storm. Or the analogy I used uh, earlier today, it's like a fog, and within it, we want to engage people there serving within the midst of the storm. But the, the weakness of that view is like you're focusing maybe on individuals and not on maybe making uh, a more just society or systemic issues 
that sort of like we should abolish slavery, for instance, that would make the world better and maybe calm some of the sinful storms. And then finally, Carson looked at some of the kind of post-Christendom perspective, because Christendom is kind of the effort, making Christianity the dominating cultural force in its institutions, uh, which, you, if you look at the Gospels, Jesus is speaking to a people that aren't like the, the Roman emperor and how I'm going to bring a new Rome. Um, and so now that, right— uh, the church maybe isn't in power as it once was, say in Western civilization, people are thinking through various post-Christendom options. Certainly the Benedict option uh, book has been offered as a form of, hey, how do we operate in this wasteland where we don't have power? Well, we have to build our own kind of countercultural institutions um, in the wasteland, so to speak. But that begs the question, well, but what about the people who are kind of getting wasted out there? How do we uh, influence without power, right? Because that's a, a more difficult question. How does a church community that maybe doesn't have power engage the culture or engage maybe people in culture? Because culture itself is just an amorphous thing, but people in culture, how do we, how do we engage there? Yeah, I think that's a, I wonder, um, in the Carson book, does he address the, uh, like the Hauerwas, Yoder, Neo-Anabaptists at all? Yeah, Where yes. do they fall in yes. there? Are they? Yes, um, he, he does. I think it's a mitigating influence on power. Okay. Um, because the Anabaptist uh, tradition comes out of, a, even coming out of Roman Catholicism, coming out of Protestantism or magisterial Protestantism, the Anabaptists were still a small minority persecuted group. Uh, and so the influence would be kind of on the ground, so to speak, I would, I would think. Yeah, and interestingly about what I found helpful, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure what I think about it is Tim Keller and Center Church. Yeah. Uh, he also addresses all of this and really pushes for there are parts of all of these to throw away. Right. right like right. all the different models. Yeah, all the models have flaws, but they it, when you that's what the idea of center church. He also carries that on to like if you look at this as a grid and you think about what do each of these perspectives bring that's helpful you can find kind of a centered model, yeah, uh, which I find to be at least interesting. Yeah, any in, in fact, Carson's book, he says any model of engaging culture can't be totalitizing because they're time-based. I mean, they're, they are speaking to a cultural moment, which will change. And so, you know, um, when the church, when Constantine became a Christian, quote-unquote, the church was in a different cultural moment than f- perhaps the time of the Puritans or, or certainly the church today in China, which is a growing influential force in the lives of the Chinese people, but yet a little bit of a threat to the government and somewhat controlled. And so if we think about, okay, we create culture, we inhabit it, some conscious, some uh, unconscious, um, we have to resist it. Um, but we also have to engage people That's right. in it. So I love the quote here uh, that I have. It says, Jesus had not called uh, his people out of culture, but he had given them a new culture within the surrounding culture. That's a quote by Jesse Fury <laughs> from your paper. I love that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So part of what I want to do there is is show that, you know, that there's a, and, and that may be two kingdoms, that, but essentially that, like, the church— God's people, uh, we are called to become a new culture. A, uh, you know, we are resident aliens to mm-hmm. to, to take mm-hmm. Howard Wass's idea there. That that really is pointing back to First Peter. Like we are a kingdom of priests, and yeah. um, and so that there's there's 
we're not leaving the culture. We're within the culture. Right. You know, uh, just as a resident alien, as someone who's a sojourner in the, but they, be, they become, you know, uh, a part of the surrounding culture, but they still hold their own distinctives. It's, it's a bit like, um, you, we were talking before this about how, when you're in more of an urban area, you've, you've got, you know, Polish neighborhoods and yeah. Italian neighborhoods and German. Lots of good food. Yeah. And you know, like <laughs> if I were to go for the right restaurants yeah. and, uh, and, and there's this sense in which within the broader culture, they're still enculturated in, in their, uh, maybe their ethnic heritage. And, uh, and, and in the best sense, there's a intermingling there. There's, yeah. they're holding on to the important things while also kind of adjusting with the culture around them and influencing the culture around them. Uh, I think, you know, I read, um, James Hunter's to change the world when it first came out yeah. and it, he to change the world is the title of the book. Right. And on like the last page he says, um, so I guess what I'm saying is we really can't change. You the world. can't change the world. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but really what he, what he was getting at is, um, to take aim at changing culture or changing the world is really too broad of an aim. Yeah. Uh, what we need to do really it is to, um, part of what I would say we need to do is recover a sense of vocation that God yeah. is calling us. And that's comprehensive. That's not just a job that yeah. involves family location. Yeah. Uh, and that, and that we are then to be faithful within there. It could be that we might be one of those special people that God uses in special. We might be William Wilberforce. Yeah. But, or, or maybe just Jenny from the block, but we're probably to... not right. We're probably <laughs> that pastor guy who, who passed yeah. away and nobody knows who he is. Craig Malcolm. Yeah. There you go. Amen. You know, and, and that um, really we can't, that's out of our control. Yeah. Um, I, lo- yeah. I love that resident alien or that first Peter language, elect exiles, right? Yeah. Chosen by God, you know, from all the nations of the world to be foreigners in their own lands as we form a new culture. There's a great example of this in the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, where people are literally conquered in war and taken captive, right, in exile. But yet they are they become influencers there in that society because they followed God. Uh, they, they did excellent in they their excellent in yeah. their education. And, and the fascinating thing when it says that Daniel was schooled in all the schools of the Chaldeans, which involved like, you know, it was like the Harry Potter school for Babylonian wizards, man. Right. And, but yet they, he was first in his class. Like he knew how to say, make a licky high, make a honey ho and do the spells. Probably he didn't believe any of it. He wasn't captured by any of it. His allegiance when tested remained with Yahweh. Right. That's right. Yeah. There's that sense in which, uh, uh, that, that, that still holding on to the, the good parts of the, of the Yahweh culture of like, he's not going to bow down and worship. Right. The false he's going to pray as he normally, he's going prays. to pray when he's, yep. His heart right. allegiance belonged, but yet he, he knew how to do the work in that kingdom, uh, and become a person that was in a place where he could influence for such a time that God might call them. And so I think that is a good path for us that we are forming new, uh, countercultural communities uh, yeah. living in right the borderlands um, between the church and culture. So we need to be married. We need to make love. We need to have kids, be men and women. And what that means, certainly in our culture, is necessary. Do our work in our vocational callings. Engage in sports. Educate our children. Even in hostile right settings, being willing to suffer if called in our allegiances, trusting Jesus and being transformed 
by him. And those communities, we hope, uh, form from multiple peoples and multiple cultures, creating a transcultural community where the beauty and goodness of the human cultures that uh, people bring as they become part of God's church uh, will then be enfleshed together where we learn and grow and display the glory of God uh, to the nations and yeah. amongst the nations. Um I'm going to close with just a quote really quickly by C.S. Lewis, because a lot today there's a discussion of the systemic, right, the cultural systems and political systems, power structures that we create that can be either just or unjust, and the personal. And I think C.S. Lewis, far before his time, right, this is uh, in the 1950s, I believe, uh, was writing about uh, how both are necessary. Transform transformation of human beings, individual people, and then they together working to form differences. But he kind of steers it towards uh, the idea of good, <laughs> the good. He says, what is the good of telling ships how to steer so as to avoid collisions if, in fact, they are such crazy old tubs that they cannot be steered at all? What is it good for drawing up on paper rules for societal and social behavior if we know, in fact, that our greed, our cowardice, our ill temper, our self-conceit are going to prevent us from keeping them? I do not mean for a moment that we ought not think and think hard about improvements in our social and economic systems. What I do mean is that all that thinking will be mere moonshine. I think he just doesn't mean the uh, drink in the mountains of Tennessee here. I think he just means like glitter that goes away. What I do mean is that all that thinking will become mere moonshine unless we realize that nothing but the courage and unselfishness of individuals is ever going to make any system work properly. It is easy enough to remove uh, the particular kinds of graft or bullying that go on in the present system. But as long as men are twisters or bullies, they will find a new way of carrying out the old game under the new system. You cannot make men good by law. And without good men, you cannot have a good society. And I think that's a uniquely Christian perspective, that systems matter. Systems of social justice and economics matter, but also you cannot have a good system, a good culture without men and women who are being transferred into virtuous men and women who won't just work a new system to their own greedy, selfish and power hunger means and ends. Any final thoughts as we think about uh, something as spider webby and amorphous as culture? Yeah, that was good from Lewis and, um, you know, it, it, the, the one thing that I'm passionate about in the church is, uh, when, when Jesus in Matthew 16 says to go out into all the world, um, that is a call maybe primarily to different ethnic groups, ethnes, different peoples. Uh, but it's also, I, 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 I teach it and think of it like a three dimensional call. There's also another dimension to that, that, uh, to go out into all the world means to go out into the culture. It means that, uh, it means to go out into, um, not just simply going out as missionaries so that the only valid way to interpret that is, is for the church to send missionaries, but also that that means that, um, we're to go out into, uh, the supermarkets and into our job jobs and into our neighborhoods. And, uh, and really the church ought to be training people, not just ministers Amen. and training people to, 
have influence and lead and serve. And that influence should be a, 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 an influence that gets below and loves our neighbor well. Uh, and, and, and so uh, I've got a passion to see the church embrace that. Like we, we, we're not going to change the culture, but we can, uh, we can see our neighborhoods transformed, our workplaces transformed by our love for our neighbor uh, that is formed in us by Christ. And then we, we create homes and communities where we'd want to invite people in. Yeah. When there is a storm raging or the fog is thick and people want to see the light of the truth in the face of Jesus Christ. I thought about Amen. that reading uh, AI Superpowers by Kai-Fu Lee when he realizes that in the face of his own mortality, when the storm of cancer visited his life, he realized what matters ultimately is love and relationship. And that's a clue, right, to the meaning and purpose of all things because the universe itself is a personal place made by a personal God. And we were made for love and relationship with God and with one another and form a culture of kindness, forgiveness, and grace purchased by Jesus at great sacrifice to his own self so that we might form communities of light that might point to his face. Well, thank you guys for joining us today for our uh, discussion of culture. Please review us there on iTunes. Five stars are acceptable and they are growing. The Gospel Underground is a joint production of Power of Change and the Bonhoeffer House. Send your feedback, comments, questions about culture, things you might want us to take up here on the Underground to info at gospelunderground.org. We are a dialogue taking place in the borderlands between the church and culture, and we hope you see you out there. Peace. Peace.